Because like I said, from chapter 3 to chapter 4, the scene has, has changed. So this is a, a, a new, new scene in the text. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 3, says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So these, these first few verses in our text today, they, they set up a lot of context for us, which is really important. And you can even see a couple times that John even gives us a little extra context by the, by the parentheticals that we see up there, the little parentheses. John's trying to fill in some of the, maybe some of the unknowns for us with those extra details. But let, let's start with the context. So I like maps and pictures. They're always good, right? I'm going to use this screen over here so the choir can see better. So... Jesus was in Jerusalem, down here, with Nicodemus, and he begins his way up to Samaria, and this is about where they believe that Sychar was. We know, they know where that's the mountain of Gerizim, which is mentioned also later in this passage. And so this is roughly, that journey is roughly 30, maybe closer to 40 miles with, you know, little zigs and zags along the way, but maybe about 30 miles as the crow flies. And so it's a it's a little bit of a you know a little bit of a hike. Thirty miles is no small distance, you know, if you're on foot. So, you know, it's probably been a day or two, maybe more. And so he's. It also says in verse four that he had to pass through Samaria, and that that's an interesting way to phrase that that he had to pass through Samaria, because while going to going from Jerusalem to Galilee up here. This is the most expedited way, right? That's the shortest distance between two points. But scholars indicate that most of the probably religiously strict Jews would have purposefully avoided Samaria. We'll talk about that uh, or why that is in just a second. So what most of them would do would be to go east over here to the Jordan River Valley and then up so that they would avoid Samaria so it's interesting that verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria because he kind of didn't have to. But it gives this sense that Jesus is on this mission. There's a deeper reason for why Jesus is going the way he's going. And, and I think it, it, it presents itself with this encounter that we'll see today. Um, something else that's interesting, so verses 5 and 6, it talks about Jacob's well and I've actually got a picture. Okay, so in the 4th century, um, a Byzantine church was built at the site of where they know Jacob's well is. And you can go there and see this sign and see where Jacob's well is. I just think that's an interesting note. And we can place, you know, details in the text and actually things geographically in the real world. So if you chose to go there, you could find Jacob's well even today. Um, but let's continue on in, in gaining our context for today. There's this, uh, what the Samaritan woman says to Jesus. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, 
ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then this is one of those places where, where John adds a little bit of extra details. And he puts, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. <clears throat> Excuse me, Samaritans. So why did John say that? Why, why does the woman seem to question that as well? What's the deal between Jews and Samaritans? Why didn't they have dealings with one another? Well, there's a lot of, lot of history there. Centuries worth of history And you have to remember back uh, to the Old Testament. So you had the nation of Israel, which was under, uh, which was one kingdom under King David and King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, the nation split into two. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel, and its capital was Samaria, capital city. And then the southern kingdom was Judah, and it kept the capital of Jerusalem. Well, as the northern kingdom that was invaded and conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. So think 700, you know, seven centuries before Jesus, this kind of uh, situation or this uh, this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews has its origins. Because as the, the northern kingdom was invaded and conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians came and settled in the land. And then they started intermarrying with with the people that were still in uh, Israel. And so the Samaritans were considered this racially mixed group of Jewish and Gentile ancestry. But along with that, it wasn't just, okay, well, they just married. It's it's that the, the cultures and the customs intertwined. And so they had a lot of influence from the Assyrians And there's one um, commentary, it says that the Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. That's that's the first five books of the the Bible, first five books of the Old Testament. So the Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was on the map a few slides ago. And so instead of Jerusalem, they worshipped at their own temple. And they had their own lens, their own perspective, their own rendering of Israelite history. And these tensions all um, often ran high between the Jews and Samaritans. And this commentary adds that Josephus, who was an early kind of historian, he was a Jewish historian, says that Josephus recounts fighting between Jews and Samaritans during Claudius' reign in the first century A.D., being so intense that Roman soldiers were called to pacify, he puts in parentheses, and to crucify many of the rebels. This hostility between Samaritans and, and the Jewish people was, was very real. There was a lot of tension between those, so much so that they would you know, battle and fight and get into conflicts with one another. The Jews also considered the Samaritans kind of religiously unclean because they had their own temple, because they kind of had their own spin on their history and their practices and all those things. The, the, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as unclean. And so when John says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, that, that verb for have no dealings, it can kind of more specifically mean they do not share use of things. So think about what Jesus is asking here of this woman. When Jesus asks this Samaritan woman to share with him the water that she is pulling from the well, 
and the context of all that, that was actually a pretty radical thing to do. But there's a lot more to the context here. Not only was Jesus talking to and asking to share water with a Samaritan, but with a Samaritan woman. Remember, this is the first century world, and in the first century, in this uh, time and place in, in the world, the social norms indicated that it was improper, or at least highly frowned upon, for a man to speak to a woman in this sort of context, especially alone and out in the open in public with someone that's not, you know, he's not related to or, or immediately um, connected with. This would have been uh, kind of against social norms and what was deemed as proper and appropriate. And we even see this later in verse 27 when the disciples come back from buying food and they see Jesus talking to this woman. It says that they were surprised to see him talking to her. It caught their attention. It's like, whoa, Jesus, what's going on? They didn't question him on it. But it does note that they noticed it, that they were surprised by Jesus here. Something else the text gives us is the time of day. We see that in verse 6. It was about the sixth hour. Um, how do we calculate what the sixth hour is? That doesn't mean it's 6 a.m. That's kind of how we calculate our time, our clock. Uh, how they calculated it was from sunrise. So if sunrise was about 6 a.m., the sixth hour would have been about noon, right? It would have been about the middle of the day. And why is this important? Well, because usually it's around the hottest part of the day, and it's also in the middle of the day. It wouldn't make sense for most women to go to the well in the middle of the day because they needed water for the whole day. So they would either go the evening before and be prepared for the next day and gather water evening by evening when it was cooler and so they'd be prepared for the whole day. Or they would go early in the morning and the same thing, it'd be cooler, they would have all day. But she goes in the middle of the day when it's not so convenient and when also when it's not as comfortable to go and she's going there by herself. So why? Well, this is a pretty familiar story, so you may already know why and fill in the blank here, but I'm going to go ahead and just kind of talk about why. And this gets a, a little out of order from the order of the text because Jesus confronts her about it later, but I think it's important just to go ahead and, and place it here. Um, we come to find out through Jesus that this woman has had five hubs husbands, and the man that she is with now is not her husband. You know, we don't know how those or why those relationships failed. We don't know if it's because, you know, she just had a, a habit or an inclination to marry uh, men that just weren't good guys to marry. We don't know. Or maybe that, you know, those marriages failed because of her own doing. Don't know. But I think that's not as important because I think the point is that it's pretty safe for us to assume that this woman had experienced failure in her life. She had experienced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And from her husband, she likely faced rejection, maybe even neglect, maybe even more, we're not sure. But I'm sure she carried around those emotional scars. I'm sure she carried around that baggage from her past. I wonder if this woman ever struggled with why those things happened to her? Why had her life turned out like it had? I'm sure it's not really what she wanted. I'm sure she wasn't proud of that. 
I wonder if she ever cried herself to sleep, wondering why she couldn't find the type of relationship that she craved. I wonder if this woman ever questioned whether she was beautiful enough or smart enough or capable enough. But here she is, going to the well in the middle of the day. She probably doesn't have the best reputation. No doubt she felt just the shame of her failures. And along with that, insecurity, pain, isolation. She probably felt judged and rejected by her community and maybe even her church or synagogue at that time. I'm sure she ached. I'm sure she longed to be able to go to the well with her jar when everyone else did. Carefree and accepted and welcomed and respected. But as it was, she and her jar made the trip to the well there every day alone. And I wonder if that jar that she had to lug back and forth from the well, to and from the well, in a way was a daily reminder of her failures. It may have been that the weight of the jar was much more than just the physical weight of the jar, the physical weight of the jar and the water within it. I'm sure it carried with it much more weight than that, an emotional weight. Let's continue on in our dialogue as maybe we just kind of keep that in our minds. And this is where Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And she responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask uh, for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And verse 10 picks up with, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus in the last chapter, Jesus speaks to this woman with this greater spiritual truth. Notice how she took Jesus' words of, you know, this living water to be a material, physical solution to her problem, and her problem was having to go to the well each day. She says... You know, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water from this well. Jesus' offer to her, she's saying, that's going to meet my physical need. But, you know, we may already read into this and say, lady, slow down. It's obvious that Jesus is speaking in metaphor. He's talking about himself as the living water. But before we jump to that, you know, conclusion... I want to ask us, are we really all that different from her? Don't we usually, if not always, or most always, turn to material things to try to remedy our problems, or to try to satisfy our wants, or to try to mask our insecurities? 
Jesus talks about living water and offers to her living water, water that will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Well, I wonder if Jesus, if he were on earth today and were to offer someone living water, I wonder if they would focus on the material as well. I wonder if they would see it as some kind of solution to the age-old problem of this desire to look and feel young. You know, it kind of sounds like the, the fountain of youth, right? You know, we're mesmerized today or admire people today, that, you know, especially athletes that seem to just like defy the laws of aging. You know, there's a certain quarterback in the NFL that's done that. Uh, back in the day, I mean, Nolan Ryan throwing 100 miles an hour at like 46 years old. Like, what's, what's up with that? Like, we're like, how do they do that? I'm going to break my arm if I try to do that. We've long been searching as humans for this fountain of youth. And uh, so I thought, how long have we been searching for this? And so I asked Wikipedia, because that's obviously where you go to find all the answers. But uh, it, it mentioned how in the 5th century, Herodotus apparently writes about such a fountain of youth. And on through the centuries, and even uh, a thousand years later, even in the 16th century... When Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon traveled to Florida, says that legend has it, here's a rendering of him searching Florida for the fountain of youth because legend had it that the Native Americans had told him about this fountain of youth somewhere in Florida. Maybe that's where all, why all the retirees go to Florida. They're, still, they're all looking for the fountain of youth still. Um, maybe it's there. I don't know. Maybe they found something. They're just not telling us. But... You know, nowadays, we don't, we don't search for a magic fountain of youth, or I think most of us probably don't. But don't we as a society, as a whole, spend a lot of money on altering the way we look in order to, to look or feel younger? Whether it's cosmetics or creams or plastic surgery or Botox or just other means of looking or feeling younger. I looked up, according to Business Insider in 2019, which was four years ago, the beauty industry was a $532 billion a year industry. $532 billion a year industry. And one report showed that in 2022, just this last year, it had risen to $564 billion. That's more than the total GDP of most countries on the planet. In fact, if, if the beauty industry were a country, it would rank 22 in total GDP. I also recently read an article, this was like this past week, you may have seen it too, about a 45-year-old ultra-wealthy rich guy who is spending $2 million a year to try to reverse the aging process in his own body. He's, he's trying, his goal is to have an 18-year-old body, but he's spending $2 million a year to try to do that. People are searching for this magic formula, that living water, but we're often missing the point. I don't mean to, you know, pick on how we want to physically look or feel, but what about emotionally? What kind of living waters are we trying to seek there to make ourselves feel better? You know, sometimes we see this with how people post on social media or feel worth by how many likes they get or how many followers they can get. Maybe it's in how we spend money and just kind of buy things and spend money just to make us feel better. I mean, studies have shown how our bodies release endorphins and dopamine when we purchase things. It kind of gives us a, a little bit of a high. I mean, who hasn't bought something when you're just kind of bored? You know, you don't have anything else to do and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it kind of made me feel better. 
especially with Amazon when you like get it like two hours later. I mean, it's like, you know, makes us feel good when we buy something. Or there's other things, you know, that we buy that may, or maybe that we do to impress others. You know, to make our kind of reputation or, or, or what's presented on Facebook or wherever more impressive, to be more important, to be more accepted maybe by others. Maybe it's in seeking out relationships in order to try to fill an a emotional void in our heart. It could be lots of things. I'm not going to go on into every single detail of what it could be. But, you know, if we think about our world today, we are the most wealthy, the most educated, the most scientifically and technologically advanced generation that has ever lived. And yet, are we really any happier than the generations before us? You know, there are more people on the planet than ever before. I don't know what it's up to, like 8 billion, 7 billion, 8 billion, whatever it is. And there's more ways to connect with all these people across the globe in in, an instant. But yet we seem to be the most lonely generation that there's ever been. Are we really that much better off? And I think with the statistics on anxiety and depression and obesity and all these other factors, I think they would claim otherwise. That in fact we might just be the most insecure, the most stressed out and lonely generation that has ever lived. Especially for not even being in a time of you know, significant economic depression or world war or you know, something real happening. I think why is this? I think it's because so often we have sought out the material to fix our problems. We've tried to remedy our emotional pain and to satisfy our our selfish wants and to mask our own insecurities. And we try to fix everything for ourselves. And in doing so, we turn away from God. We have turned away from God. And this isn't anything new in the Old Testament. Old Testament, God issues this judgment against Jerusalem. This is Jeremiah 2.13. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We are self-focused, and we want to try to control things for ourselves and kind of build our own cisterns, but they're flawed cisterns. It's not the source of living water. We try to distract ourselves with things, and you know, at best they may temporarily band-aid our problem or make us feel better for the moment, But ultimately, all we're doing is focusing on the symptoms. We're not seeking to treat the real root of the disease. And that's where we need Jesus. Just like how the woman at the well sought husband after husband after husband to likely fill the void in her life, so we try thing after thing after thing to fill the void in our own lives. And what's, what's the definition of insanity or the, you know, the kind of cutesy definition of insanity? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's kind of what we've done. We've done the same thing over and over, seeking the material instead of getting to the root of the problem, which is our spiritual longing and our spiritual need for living water. It's, it's a worship problem that we have. And that's what Jesus opens the woman's eyes to, her need for a spiritual solution. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water for your soul. I added that last part, but I think that's what he means. And then a couple verses later, anyone who drinks this water, this water that we try to fill with our own cisterns, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just like the Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago. You know, we walk around, many people walk around with our, our jars. And we put so much effort each and every day to try to fill our jars that just keep going empty. And we do it again. And we try to fill these jars of our lives that just keep going empty. We try to fill them with everything that we think we need. And even as Christians, we do this. Because we're often so guilty, we fill our jars with everything else first. And then we say, oh yeah, uh, Jesus in the church, where can I fit that? And so we, we do what we do with an overflowing trash can when we've got to fit a little bit more. What do we do? We kind of put our foot in it and kind of, you know, mash it down. We, you know, just make a little bit extra room. We say, oh, there's a little room on the side. Okay, there. All right, I put, found a place for Jesus. We fill our lives first with the other stuff. And we try to cram Jesus on the side with what's left of our day, our time, our energy. You know, it's no wonder nowadays that church can feel like such a burden to go to. Or such a burden to be a part of or to serve in or to, you know, to make it to a Bible study or a Sunday school class. It's because we've filled our lives with so much else. There's barely room in our lives for the spiritual. And it's exhausting to do that day after day. It's exhausting to try to cram into the space of our overfilled lives, our spiritual life. It doesn't feel like this living water that Jesus speaks of. All right, let's finish our, our text in John, and I'm going to wrap it all up. So I'm going to pick up in John 4, verse 27. And this is, uh, so I'll just read. It says, uh, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So I want to pause there before I just do that last bit. Again, think about this woman. She had gone to the well at noon with her jar, as she probably did every day. It was her routine. She worked hard to fill that jar day after day. And likely it represented the weight of her failure and shame and insecurity. Because every day when she had to pick that up, she was worried about what others might say or think of her. But did you notice in that last section that I read what she did with the jar? It says, so the woman left her water jar. She left it behind. At that moment, she didn't need the material water that filled that jar because she had found the spiritual living water that was welling up from her soul. And that's all that we need. Ultimately, that's all that, or that's everything that every person's soul longs for. And as Christians, we know about living water, but sometimes we're still clinging to that jar and all our extra stuff, and we try to pack our faith into it. But really what we need to do is set that jar aside and focus on Jesus. We need to draw first from Christ, who is our living water. 
Jesus wants to be the source of the life within us and to be the foundation for everything that we are and everything that we do. It starts with Jesus and we build on top of that. We don't have our jar and fill it up and then cram Jesus in the side. We start with Jesus and build from there everything that we do. Jesus doesn't want us to exhaust ourselves trying to pack in and cram our lives together. But he wants us to live into a new life in him because he is the fount of living water. And when we begin from there and we live for him and we serve him, it's not burdensome. It's not exhausting, but rather it's life-giving and it's sustaining. So a few questions to, to ponder do you feel tired? Do you feel like the weight of your jar is too much? Are you only trying to pack things in as best you can? Do you agonize under the burden of pressure and stress or shame even? Friends, put the jar down and follow Christ. Reprioritize your life. Live into the new life in Christ. Begin with him. And that probably means saying no to things. We're terrible at doing this. It probably means saying no to things. And it probably means having your kids say no to things. That's even harder. Is it really worth that they be involved in everything under the sun? Think about how you can really help them build a foundation of their life on Christ. How can we help them prioritize their faith? Because ultimately, what's going to serve them better throughout their life and in the life to come? Be nourished by the living water of Christ and leave that jar behind and build your new life in Christ with purpose. I want to close with our, the final reading here because we see this woman comp changed completely. From avoiding everyone to now living with purpose. And so I'm going to pick up again with verse 28, but I'm going to take it through uh, verse 42. So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That woman went boldly forward to, and told others her testimony about Jesus. She, wasn't, she didn't have a degree in theology or biblical studies. She had her story. She had her testimony that was simply about her encounter with Jesus. It wasn't that she had a perfect past, but what she now had was a new present and a new future. And through her, God used her as an instrument of his grace for others to come and listen for themselves and to inquire about Jesus for themselves, which led them to then have their own experience with the living water. They said it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have now heard for ourselves, and we know this for me is the Savior of the world. 
Friends, my encouragement is that we may all know the gift of God and ask Jesus for his living water. And that we would do what the Samaritan woman did. Set down our jars. Build our lives on Christ and share with others about the encounters that we have with Jesus. And I want to end with just these, this one or two verses from Isaiah. Behold, God is my salvation. And I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. May God's grace fill you with his peace, peace and joy and love both now and forevermore. Let's pray.